Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at, uh, over the next 10 weeks, we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments are probably one of the more well-known parts of the Bible. Uh, most people have at least heard of them, uh, but uh, they come in the book of Exodus, and we've been reading the story of Exodus about how God rescued the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt and how he brought them out and how he brought them to a place of belonging to him. And the Ten Commandments come after God has saved the people and brought them out of slavery, and now he's teaching them, this is what it means to live as my people in the world. Uh, last week, we sort of took a big picture view of the Ten Commandments. We talked about how they're a manual that shows us God's design, a mirror that shows us our sin, a window that shows us our Savior, Jesus, and a guide that lead us, sort of show us God's path for us as his redeemed people. And uh, I'm going to, uh, this morning we're just going to look uh, at the first commandment. Um, it's a short verse, uh, but we're going to, it's an important one. It's really the foundation of all the others. Uh, so let me just read verses 1 through 3 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, in 2005, the late author David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address at Kenyon College uh, that was later published in a book called This Is Water. Uh, Wallace was not a Christian, and Kenyon College is not a particularly religious college, uh, but here is some of what he said. He said, a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is totally wrong and deluded. Here's one example. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. This is our default setting. There is no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you or behind you or to the left or right of you or on your TV or on your monitor or your device today, he might say, or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. He says, my natural hardwired default setting is to be deeply and literally self-centered, to see and interpret everything through the lens of self. So he says, this is something that we just, this is the natural way that we approach the world, and yet it can't be right, right? There's no way that I can be the center of the universe. It doesn't make any sense, or any of us. And yet we can easily feel like that's the way the world is, or that's the way it should be. Now later on in his speech, he went on to say this. Here's something else that's weird but true. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, 
always on the verge of being found out. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And he said, when we worship these kinds of things, we're living out of a constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Now, this guy was not a Christian. He was not speaking to a religious audience. He was speaking to a group of college students who were graduating. And he said a lot of other things in his speech, but he described our human condition, I think, quite accurately. He spoke a lot of truth. He recognized, really, the problem that the first commandment addresses. As human beings, we're driven to worship something or other, and we often worship and build our lives around the wrong things. We might worship ourselves, might think of ourselves as the center of the universe, and treat other people as if they're means to an end, or we might worship something else that we think will fulfill and complete and satisfy us and comfort us. The only question is, who or what will we worship? We're going to worship something, ourselves, something else, or the true God. And the first commandment out of all the ten that God says to his people is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's addressing this very issue. So I want to focus on this first commandment, and I want to look at it in the framework that I gave you last week. I want to look at how it's a manual that shows us God's good design for us as his creatures, how it's a mirror that shows us our sin and the ways we fall short of what God intended for us, how it's a window that shows us Jesus, our Savior, and how it's a guide for us to walk along the path that God has for us. So I want to, uh, I'm going to use the same outline for each of the commandments, manual, mirror, window, guide. And it's really just leading us along the story of the Bible because the story of the Bible starts with how God made us and it continues with how we've fallen short and how we've sinned and then it shows us how uh, it all leads up to Jesus who came to save us and then uh, God is showing us how to walk with Jesus along, walk as followers of Jesus along the way. Uh, so I hope that, uh, that, that this will help you uh, in thinking about the meaning of the Ten Commandments and in thinking about the meaning of the laws in the Bible in general and God's commands uh, that, and, and why they're there. All right, so how is this first commandment a manual that shows us God's design? Uh, well, I want us to step back for a moment and try to step back into the ancient world when the first commandment was given, when Moses was speaking to the people or God was speaking to the people of Israel after uh, they had been led out of Egypt and in the ancient world, when these people were living, this command to not have any other gods except one and only worship him, that command would have sounded very odd because nearly everyone else in the ancient world worshiped multiple gods and goddesses. That was the norm. So in Egypt, where the Israelites had lived for centuries, people worshiped the Nile River they worshipped Osiris, the god of the underworld. They worshipped Hecate, the goddess of childbirth. They worshipped Pharaoh himself as the manifestation of the sun god and a hundred other gods. And 
you know, we have archaeological evidence that shows us some of uh, the, the, the gods that people worshipped in Egypt. And then in the land of Canaan, where the people of Israel were going, that would become their homeland, uh, people worshipped Baal, the storm god, Asherah, the fertility goddess, Dagon, the god of good harvest, and plenty of others there too. The point is, every nation, every group of people in the ancient world had its own array of gods and goddesses. Now, and, and that was just normal and acceptable. Uh, there was sometimes rivalry between the devotees of various deities, but it was a little bit like the rivalry between sports fans who follow different NFL teams, right? We might have a friendly debate. Should we root for the Patriots? That's the right answer, by the way. Um, should we root for the Jets? Should we root for the Steelers? I know some of you are frowning at me. Okay, fine. Uh, they're not doing that well this year. That's right. All right. Um, should we root for the Eagles, whoever, or any other team? But the thing is, they're all playing the same game, right? And everybody loves a good football game, or at least some of us love a good football game, um, right? And most players won't just play on one team in the course of their career. Most players are going to be traded at some point or another, or they're going to be a free agent, and they'll end up signing with a different team, right? And even if you really like one team, you'll at least have to say, well, I also like this guy on the other team, and, well, if it's these other two teams playing, I'll choose this one rather than that one, and if my team doesn't win the championship, right? We don't expect exclusive loyalty in the realm of being a sports fan. Right? We recognize you can change sides, a you know, go back and forth and, and have multiple teams you're rooting for sometimes. And that's a little bit like how people in the ancient world, not a perfect analogy, but it's a little bit like how people saw their different gods and goddesses. Right? You might have your favorite that you really like, that you think really helps you out, but someday you might join your friends who are worshiping a different one and go to a party at a different god's temple and mix and match whatever. But when the God of the Bible, Yahweh, rescued the people of Israel from Egypt, he didn't say, add me to your list of deities that you worship. He didn't say, remember me when you get to Canaan and worship me there too, along with all the rest of the Canaanite gods. He said, don't have any other gods before me. That phrase, before me, literally means before my face or in my presence. God is saying, forsake all the other gods and goddesses and worship me alone. And that was a very sort of new and strange idea for people who had been raised in a polytheistic culture where people worship many different gods. Uh, monotheism was almost unheard of in the ancient world. And throughout their history, the people of Israel struggled to obey this command. They always wanted to add something else in. They wanted to add in the worship of Baal or of some other god alongside the true God. And over and over, God reminded them of this first commandment. And he reminded them why it was a good thing. Uh, and so the Bible gives many reasons why this is a good command. But here's two reasons the Bible gives. Number one, the Bible says that worshiping many gods doesn't make sense. Isaiah 44 describes a man who cuts down a tree, uses half of it for firewood to cook his dinner, and makes the other half 
into a statue that he bows down and worships. Isaiah says half of it he burns in the fire, he eats meat over it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Isaiah is saying, this is ridiculous. Just look. This doesn't make any rational sense. If you read ancient Greek myths, those are maybe some of the ancient myths we're a little more familiar with. The gods are petty, vindictive, cruel, violent, and driven by lust and greed. In other words, they're like human beings at our worst. They're just projections of ourselves. They're projections of our own experience and our own imagination. But when you open the Bible from the very first page, we're introduced to a God who is not like us. The God of the Bible is not conniving. He's, he's not sort of fighting and constantly in conflict with all these other gods, trying to one-up somebody else. No, the God of the Bible is transcendent over everything and personal. Wants to relate to us, have a personal relationship with us. So we're introduced to a God who is not like the other gods of the ancient world and who is not just like us. So the Bible says worshiping many gods doesn't make sense. Worshiping idols doesn't make rational sense. But it also says worshiping many different gods makes us weary. Think about it this way. On a human level, if you are constantly trying to win the favor of 10 different people who have 10 different agendas that sometimes conflict with one another, that is going to be a never-ending task. And you are always going to be tired. And you're never going to feel like you've ever achieved that. Right? If you're always trying to please 10 different people. And the Bible says that's what it's like to worship a whole bunch of different gods. In 1 Kings 18.21, the prophet Elijah confronted the people of Israel. He said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Elijah says to the people, you're lurching back and forth. It's like a car that's making a U-turn and going this way, then making a U-turn, going the other way, and making a U-turn again, going the other way, it's, and you're getting nowhere. Isaiah says you're just going to tire yourself out by going in all these different directions and trying to win the favor of all these different gods. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician. You might have heard of Pascal, uh, but he was also a devout Christian, and he had a powerful conversion experience late one night, and he wrote this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person that cannot be satisfied by any created thing. In other words, only the true and living God can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, and that's why this is a good command, not to worship anything else except the one true God, because only he can satisfy our truest longings, and worshiping anything else will ultimately make us weary. So that's why the first commandment is a manual that shows us God's good design, but second, the first commandment is also a mirror that shows us our sin. Now, I suspect that most of us have not seriously considered worshiping the ancient Egyptian gods, the ancient Babylonian gods, the ancient Canaanite gods. Uh, probably most of us don't even know most of their names, let alone what their functions were supposed to be, right? Most of us here 
would probably say, in principle, I'm a monotheist. That word just means I believe in one God, not a whole bunch of different ones, right? But here's the thing. Just because we agree in our minds that there's only one true God, that doesn't mean that we are immune to what this commandment warns us against. You know, here's the thing. If you read the Old Testament, most of the time the Israelites didn't completely stop worshiping Yahweh, the God who had saved them from Egypt. They didn't say the Lord doesn't exist at all. Most of the time they didn't say that. They just wanted to add some other things in. And Christians can fall into the same sort of problem. We might not completely stop worshiping the God of the Bible, but we can let all kinds of other things sort of creep in and gradually take center stage in our lives, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our priorities, in our decisions. I mean, think about it this way. What does it mean to make something your God? One person put it like this. Your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. So here's a series of statements that can help us maybe realize some of the gods we might be worshiping or drawn to worship. I can't face the day without blank. My life wouldn't be meaningful or satisfying without blank. My sense of identity and how I carry myself is primarily built around blank. I'm happy to spend lots of time and money and energy to get blank. I feel threatened and angry when it seems like blank might be taken away from me. When I have free time and no one is forcing me to do anything in particular, my thoughts gravitate towards blank. My pride and joy is blank. The question is, how do you fill in the blanks? And the answer is, that might be what you are worshiping or what you are drawn to worship. It could be family and children, could be success and recognition, could be friends and popularity, could be clothes and physical appearance, could be health and safety. Now, all of those, none of those are inherently bad things. But here's the thing, we can take good things and make them into our gods that we're worshiping. That's the warning. Right? Worshiping other gods doesn't necessarily mean worshiping, you know, doing things that are worshiping things that are inherently bad, but it can mean taking something that is a good piece of the puzzle and making it the center of the puzzle. Right? Jesus said your heavenly Father knows you need food, clothing, other basic needs, but all those things can become our functional gods, the things that we seek first the things that we build our life and our identity around. And Jesus says that's the problem. That's the nature of sin. Sin means being curved in on ourselves. Whether it's thinking that I'm the center of the universe or grabbing onto something else and thinking that's what's going to make my life count. That's what makes my life meaningful. That's what I really need and can't let go of. And if that is anything else but God, it will never, in the long run, be able to hold that weight.
So that's why the first commandment is not just a manual that shows us God's good design. It's also a mirror that shows us our sin because we tend to worship other things alongside the true God. But third, the first commandment is also a window that shows us our Savior, Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't just teach us to obey the first commandment. He did when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the other things will come in their time. Right? He didn't just teach us, you need to obey this. He obeyed it completely. And he fulfilled it on our behalf. So here's one place where you can see that. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert. It's before he begins his public teaching ministry. He goes off into the desert alone for 40 days, and it says he was tempted by the devil. Three times, the devil came to him with three temptations. And, and each of these temptations, Satan was tempting Jesus to prioritize something other than God and God's will. So first temptation, Satan said to Jesus, why don't you worship personal comfort? He said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan says, you know, you're hungry, Jesus, right? You've been fasting and praying for a long time. Why don't you just use your miraculous power and make your life a little easier? And Jesus says, no. I didn't come to use my miraculous power to make my life easier. So then Satan brings him another temptation. He says, uh, why don't you worship public recognition? Satan takes him to the top, the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the capital city. Lots of people were there. The temple was a prominent place. And he says, you're the son of God, right? If you're the son of God, jump off. And then ask the angels to carry you so that you'll land safely and you can show everybody who you are. Then you'll be publicly recognized. Everybody will know that you're the son of God because you, you did this stunt. And everybody will be like, wow, he's cool. He can jump off. He's like Superman. And Jesus says, no, I haven't come to be like Superman. And finally, so Satan tempted him to worship personal comfort, public recognition. The third temptation, Satan tempted Jesus to worship political power. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, to Jesus, all these I'll give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You hear that? Only, him only, you, will, you shall serve. So three times, Satan tempted Jesus to violate the first commandment, to worship his own comfort, or to worship public recognition, or to worship political power. And three times, Jesus said, no, no, no. Jesus said, my priority is to do the will of God. So Jesus, and Jesus continued to prioritize doing the will of God throughout his life, not just in the desert, when he was tempted by Satan, this wasn't just a one-time thing, but throughout his life, Jesus prioritized doing God's will even when it meant sacrificing his own personal comfort. He was hungry and tired after long days of teaching crowds of people. He was thirsty when he had been walking for a long way and he sat down at the well in Samaria. He was lonely when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And Jesus never used his miraculous power in any of those situations when he was hungry or thirsty or tired or lonely. He never used his miraculous power to get himself out of the jam. And that is good news for us. And the reason why it's good news for us is because it means that when we're in a jam and when we don't have a way out, when you're hungry or thirsty or lonely or tired and you can't use miraculous power to solve that problem, Jesus knows exactly what it's like. Because Jesus did not take an easy way out. He did not use his miraculous power to satisfy his personal comfort. And so Jesus knows exactly what it's like when we're in a hard place and when God asks us to trust him in walking through a hard place and trust that God will provide for us even if there's not an easy road out. Jesus has walked the same road that he calls us to walk, and he didn't take any shortcuts. Jesus also prioritized doing the will of God when it meant sacrificing public recognition. You know, one of the things that we don't really think a lot about is where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up in a no-name town up in the hills. And one of Jesus' followers, a guy who later became one of Jesus' followers, a guy named Nathaniel, when he heard where Jesus was from, somebody told him, Jesus is from Nazareth, and he's the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That's the town Jesus grew up in. Jesus chose to grow up in a town that was not popular. And that people didn't say, ooh, that's a cool place to live. People said, why would anyone choose to live there? I mean, Jesus could have chosen anywhere to grow up. But he chose to grow up in a place where he wasn't publicly recognized. Even his own brothers, his own blood relatives, the Gospel of John says they didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. But for most of his life, at one point, they came to, they thought he was out of his mind. And they tried to do an intervention. They were wrong. You see, Jesus lived a humble servant life, and he didn't, and he prioritized doing God's will even when it meant sacrificing public recognition. And finally, Jesus prioritized doing God's will even when it meant sacrificing political power. Jesus never held a political office, and he had little or no political influence in his society. And in the end, the political and religious authorities conspired to put him to death. And Jesus was okay with all that, in one sense. Not because it was right, and not because he was a coward who was afraid to confront political leaders. On a couple of occasions, Jesus did confront Pilate, for example. But Jesus hadn't come to earth to seize the reins of political power. He came to bring salvation in a far more profound and lasting way. And so Jesus prioritized throughout his whole life, he prioritized doing God's will. He knew that he had come to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people and to reconcile us to God and to pay the price that was necessary to forgive our sins. And he kept his eyes on that mission. And he said, I'm here to do God's will. And nothing else will take priority over that. Not my personal comfort, not public recognition, not political power. Among all of humanity, Jesus Christ was the one true worshiper. 
who never worshipped anything else but his heavenly father. He never let anything come between him and his heavenly father. And that's good news for us because he did that for us. All of us have broken the first commandment in one way or another, and yet Jesus obeyed and fulfilled it for us. And that's why he's qualified to be our Savior and to be our Lord. So finally, last point, guide. How does this command, how does this first command show us God's path? Right? We've seen how it shows us God's good design, how it shows us our sin, how it shows us Jesus. But how does it show us the good path that God wants us to walk in? You know, in an important sense, this first command is the foundation of all the others that follow. All the Ten Commandments, in one sense, build on this first one. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's basically putting the first commandment in, in, in other words, but it's basically the heart of the first commandment. So how is this first commandment a guide for our life as followers of Jesus? Let me end with two practical points. First, the first commandment teaches us to worship only the God who is revealed in the Bible and not to worship any other deities, prophets, or religious leaders. So in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and the cloud of God's glory descended, and a voice from heaven said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And in the New Testament, there's a similar scene where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, takes three of his disciples up on a mountain, and it's the Mount of Transfiguration, and the cloud of God's glory comes down, and the voice from heaven speaks. But this time, the voice says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So the same God who had spoken to the Israelites and said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, he now says, listen to my beloved Son. Listen to Jesus. So just as God told the Israelites in the Old Testament, don't have any other gods before me, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and humanity, that we need to come to God through him and only through him, and we must not put anyone else on his level. So we can't mix the worship of the Lord Jesus with the worship of Buddha or worship of Hindu gods or the worship of the Wiccan Mother Earth Goddess, or the worship of ancestors, or the worship of self and self-expression. Self and self-expression might be the most common idol in our society today, even more than all the others. But the Bible says we can't mix worshiping Jesus with worshiping any other gods or prophets or religious leaders. First Timothy 2 verse 5 says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus himself, human. Now, as followers of Jesus, we should love and respect other people no matter what beliefs they hold. Right? We might interact with people who hold a wide variety of different religious beliefs or have no religious faith at all. And we should love and respect everyone because every single person is made in the image of God. But we should not join in worshiping other gods. We must worship only the God revealed in the Bible and in Jesus. Second practical point, this commandment calls us to prioritize God's will even when it means giving up personal comfort, public recognition, or political power. Uh, during the prayer, uh, I prayed for 
our missionary friends in Central Asia. Uh, there's a letter from them above the coffee maker. If you want to look at that, I can make some copies. You can, we can make some copies if you want to take it home and be reminded to pray for them. Uh, but among other things, it tells the story of a pastor who led a camp for children, sort of like we did a vacation Bible school here this summer. And the authorities arrived. They arrested him. He was severely beaten. He was detained for a month um, simply for teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to youth and children. There's no, no other accusation, nothing else he did wrong. That was simply what he was uh, mistreated for. He understands that following Jesus Christ sometimes means giving up personal comfort. His family understands that at a very deep and, and visceral level. Uh, it, the, the, the letter also talks about 20 people who are recently baptized, who had grown up practicing a different religion, but who had come to faith in Jesus. Many of them had had visions or dreams of Jesus that had sort of led them to really want to know Jesus and find uh, the truth about him from the Bible. Um, again, two of, you know, two of them lost their jobs as a result of that, uh, of openly identifying as Christians in their country. They understand that following Jesus sometimes means giving up public recognition. And yet, they're they were gladly, they're gladly willing to do that. And we should pray for them. You know, most of us are like, wow, that's harder than most of what I've had to deal with in the last week, right? So we should pray for them, and we should be encouraged by their faith and their courage. Uh, we have a lot to learn from brothers and sisters in Christ like these. Uh, but right here in the U.S., I think, uh, I think the last point is also relevant about uh, prioritizing God's will, even if it means giving up political power, right? In a little over a year, we'll have another presidential election. And if you read the news, people are already plotting and preparing. And one of the most important things that Christians can be doing over the next year is re remember who we worship. Joe Biden is not worthy of our worship. Donald Trump is not worthy of our worship. None of the other candidates who are maybe trying to challenge them are either. There's only one savior of the world, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is already on the throne, and he reigns even above the tumult and the chaos of this world. And he will deliver on all his promises, and he will judge the world in righteousness one day. And he is the hope that we can cling to in troubled times. So let's pray and let's worship him alone. Father God, we thank you for this first commandment. And we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would show us the idols that we are tempted to worship in our hearts and in our daily lives. We pray that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus, our faithful Savior. We pray that we would be strengthened to follow you and to prioritize doing the will of God, even if it means giving up other things. We pray that we would worship you alone and not let anyone else take your place in our hearts and in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.